Now we're going to John chapter 11. And if you look at my sermon notes, or if you look at your bulletins, you can do either one, you'll see that we've got basically almost the whole chapter there. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter today because that would take a little bit of time. Although some, there's actually going to come a day someday, I'm just going to just read. But we're going to, so I'm going to hit chapter 11. I'm going to do a couple things. We are starting into the march towards Easter, believe it or not. The march for Easter really kind of starts now. It's how many weeks away? And about every four years, we come back to Lazarus in the tomb. Now, I could preach every year on Lazarus. Matter of fact, I could give you a month's worth of Lazarus because I love this miracle. But in fairness, it can be, some of you might remember it. Don't worry. We'll learn something new today. Now, in chapter 11, it says, A man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. This Mary, who, whose brother Lazarus now was sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there two more days. And then he said, Disciple, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back. Jesus answered, aren't there 12 hours of daylight? Any who walk, anyone who walks in the daylight will not stumble, for they will see by this world's light. Then let me go down to verse 21. Now, he's explained to them all the natural sleep and all this, and it comes down. They're at the tomb. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would have not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know you'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, and the one who believes in me, even though they die, and whoever is by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Then my favorite part. We're going to go to verse 39. Take away the stone. The Lord said, Martha, but Lord said, Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad smell, and he's been in there four days, and he stinketh. Then God, Jesus said to him, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I've said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they might believe you sent me. And then he said this. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and cloth, 
And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes. May God bless the reading of his word. If you get time this week, read the whole story. Last week, we opened our sermon, our study of God's holy word, with this statement. Today, we are in the book of John, and you may or may not be aware of this, but the gospel of John is a selective gospel. John himself basically said that in John chapter 20, verse 30 through 32. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples which were not recorded in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing that you may have life in his name. Now he does not record the events in Jesus' life that do not help him fulfill his purpose. Nothing has changed since last week. That's still all true. But today, you're in trouble. I got a little sidebar here. When I started this sermon, I had 19 pages of sermon notes. I can only fit 14 in on our time. I'm, I'm paging out. So you're getting a few less stories and a lot more stuff. So this is all meat and potatoes sermon. But this is meat and potatoes stuff. We are a resurrection religion. The Gospel of John wrote. The Gospel according to John is how he started it off. John selected just, Jesus had done miracles. He'd done thousands of miracles, but John selected just seven of them. Seven miracles, which he called signs to help his readers believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing that we may have life in his name. Now, the first half of John's gospel deals with Jesus' ministry and contains the seven signs. Chapter 11 contains this, this, the seventh sign. And together with chapter 12, these two chapters are a transition period from, to the second half of John's gospel. The second half of God's, John's gospel only deals with the final week. So the first half is Jesus' life, and the second half is just one week. Hmm. Today we're going to look at Jesus' seventh and greatest sign. The raising of Lazarus from the dead. The raising of Lazarus from the dead was not only our Lord's last, it wasn't his last miracle before going to the cross, but it was certainly his greatest miracle. And one that aroused the most response from both his friends and enemies. You can go and read about it. They just, they, that was when they decided to kill him. A guy in the grave four days, we got to get rid of this guy. This is what happens. John selected this miracle as the seventh in the series recorded in this book because it is really the climatic miracle of our Lord's ministry. Yes, he had raised others from the dead, but Lazarus had been in the grave for days. And he stinketh. I love that word. I don't get to use it very often, just this sermon. It was a miracle that could not be denied. 
or avoided by the Jewish leaders. If Jesus can do nothing about death, then whatever else he can do amounts to nothing. The Apostle Paul wrote this himself. If in this life we only have one hope in Christ, then we are all men most miserable. That's the actual translation. Those are Paul's words, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. And he also wrote, death is man's last enemy in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 26. But Jesus has defeated this horrible enemy and totally and permanently. The emphasis in John chapter 11 is on faith. You find some form of that word, at least, I believe it's eight times in the account in chapter 11 alone. Eight times faith. It's one way or the other, it's there. Another term is the glory of God. And you can find that in John 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 4, and, and also verse 40. In what Jesus said and did, he sought to strengthen the faith of the people. 977 years before Jesus Christ walked this earth, King Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem to God. And in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 8, verse 27, he, they recorded these words of King Solomon as he dedicated the temple. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Asked Solomon. And that's a great question indeed. God's glory had dwelt in the tabernacle. And you can, that's recorded in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. And his glory had dwelt in the first temple. That's 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10, 11. You tell, we can all read that today, sitting here today. But that glory had departed from disobedient Israel. The book of Ezekiel tells us this sad fact. Now, it's in many places in Ezekiel. And if you like to write down some notes, I'm going to go through them quick. Ezekiel 9, 3, 10, 4, chapter 18, 11, 23, and 20, no, 22, chapter 11, 22, and 23. God had departed from Israel. But then a marvelous thing happened and the glory of God came to his people again in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. The writers of the four Gospels have given us snapshots of our Lord's life on earth for no complete biography could ever be written. Now John tells us that in chapter 21, verse 25. Matthew wrote to his fellow Jews in mind, and he emphasized Jesus of Nazareth, who had fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. Mark wrote to the busy Romans. Whereas Matthew emphasized the king, Mark presented the servant ministering to needy people. 
Luke wrote his gospel for the Greeks and introduced them to a sympathetic son of man. But it was given to John, the beloved disciple, to write a book for both Jews and Gentiles. And you know you're a Gentile, right? You're technically a Gentile. He presents Jesus as the Son of God. Now, we know that John had Gentiles in mind, as well as Jews, because he often interpreted Jewish words or customs for the Gentile readers. That's why you can know what it means. He interpreted them. Now, I can give you lots of examples of this interpretation. I know some of you like to write down notes. So, and they're all out of John. John 1, 38, and, and, and also 42 and 40, no, 41 and 42. And then you got John chapter 5, verse 2, and you got 9, verse 7, and 19, verse 13, and all of chapter 17, and then 20, verse 16. And those are all readable later. I can fill up the whole, whole sermon just giving you those quotes. The emphasis to the Jews, though, is that Jesus not only fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies, but he also fulfilled all the titles. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now that's John 1, 29. And, and the latter from, did you know that's one of the titles? The latter from heaven to earth, that's John 1, 51. And Genesis chapter 28. And the new temple, that is John 2, 19 and 21. And the new birth, John 3, 4. He's also the serpent in the field. Goes back to the most of the field. It's John 3, 14. And the bread of God that came down from heaven. That's John 6, 35, if I'm right. All the titles are fulfilled. Whereas the first three Gospels are describing events of Jesus' life, John emphasized the meaning of these events so you can figure out what they meant. For example, all four Gospels record the feeding of the 5,000, which we talked about earlier in another sermon. But only John records Jesus' sermon on the bread of life that followed the miracle that when he interpreted for the people what it meant, the bread of life. But there's one major theme that runs throughout John's gospel. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And if you commit yourself to him, he will give you eternal life. Those words are found in John chapter 20, verse 31. In verses 1 through 16 of our reading today, John is teaching the disciples. Now, we sometimes, at least I don't know about you, but sometimes we think of the disciples as super saints, right? But such was not the case. They often failed our Lord. He constantly was seeking to increase their faith. After all, one day he would leave them and they would be responsible for carrying on the ministry. If their faith was weak, 
their work would never be strong. Now, Jesus was in Bethabara, which is about 20 miles from Bethany. Okay, right across the river, right? It's called Bethany beyond the Jordan. And one day, a messenger arrived with the sad news that our Lord's dear friend Lazarus was sick. If that man had traveled quickly, without any delay, he could have made the trip in one day. Jesus sent him back the next day with an encouraging message, and that's recorded in John 11.4. And that's a very encouraging message. You should read it later. Then Jesus waited for two more days before he left Bethany. And by the time he and his disciples arrived, Lazarus had been dead for four days. That means Lazarus had died on the very day that the messenger had left to contact Jesus. When the, now picture this, when the messenger arrived back home, he would find Lazarus already dead. What would his message that Jesus had given him to convey, what would it convey to grieving sisters now? That their brother had already been dead and buried. Jesus was urging them to believe his word no matter how discouraging the circumstances might appear. No doubt the disciples were perplexed. Yeah, they were always perplexed, but they were perplexed by several things happening here. First of all, Jesus loved Lazarus so much. Why did he permit him to get sick? Even more, why did, why did Jesus delay in going to the sisters? And for, for that matter, he could have healed Lazarus at a distance just like he did the nobleman's son, which is recorded in John 4, chapter 4, verse 34 through 54. He didn't have to be right there. He could, you're healed. The, my, but the Bible clearly makes clear that there was a strong love between, a love relationship between Jesus and, and, and this family. And yet our Lord's behavior seems to contradict this love. When you read it, it's like, what are you doing? God's love for his own is not a pampering love. It is a perfecting love. The fact that he loves us and we love him is no guarantee that we will be shelters for problems and pains in our lives. Any of you got a pain? Okay, only one person in here is honest. I raise my hand, at least. <sighs> After all, the father loves his son, and yet the father permitted his son to drink the cup of sorrow and experience the shame and the pain of the cross. We must never think of love and suffering. They're not, it's not, they're not incompatible. They go hand in hand. Jesus could have prevented Lazarus from sickness or even healed it from where he was, but he chose not to do it. He saw this sickness as an opportunity to glorify the Father. It is not important 
that we Christians are comfortable. But what is important is that we glorify God in all we do. I'm going to say that again. It might stretch you here. It is not important that we Christians are comfortable. But it is important that we glorify God in all we do. The next thing I want to draw your attention to in today is in the pr their prayer to Jesus. The two sisters did not tell him what to do. And one of them, that's a miracle already. They simply informed Jesus that there was a need and they reminded him that he loved Lazarus. They knew it was dangerous for Jesus to return to Judah, but because the Jewish leaders were seriously out to destroy him, they just tried to stone him. Perhaps they hoped he would just speak a word and his brother would be healed. They knew he could heal from a distance. They'd been there. Our Lord's message to the sisters did not say that their brother would not die. It only promised, it promised only that his death would not be the ultimate result. For the ultimate result would be to glorify God. Note that. God, once again, Jesus called himself the Son of God here. Now, th this, is, this is one of the times in the Bible he's saying exactly who he is. Go read it. He calls himself the Son of God. He wanted them to lay hold of this promise. When we find ourselves confronted by disease, disappointment, delays, even death, our only encouragement is the word of God. We must live by faith and not by sight. Their situation seemed hopeless to the world. Yet the sisters knew that Jesus was the master of every situation. The promise of Psalms chapter 50 verse 15 finds a parallel here. And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee, and thou will glorify me. That's Psalms 15, chapter 15, Psalms 50, chapter 15. It makes a great poster for a wall if you want to decorate something. Now, what about our Lord's delay? He was not waiting for Lazarus to die because Lazarus had already died that day. Jesus lived on a divine timetable and he was waiting for the Father to tell him when to go to Bethany. The fact that the man had been dead for four days gave greater authenticity to the miracle and greater opportunity for the people to believe, including his own disciples. When our Lord announced that he was returning to Judah, his disciples were alarmed, if you read it, because they knew how dangerous it was. Bethany is only two miles from Jerusalem. And they knew that his return to Judah would 
and the miracle of the raising of Lazarus would precipitate in his own arrest and death. Jesus knew all this. He was forced in their hand. The disciples were just dumb. We'll, we'll cut them some slack. I got to keep going. The Lord calmed their fears by reminding them that he was on the Father's schedule and that nothing could harm them. No, when you read it, nothing could harm them. He never said him. But the disciples not only misunderstood the schedule, they had misunderstood the reason for the visit. They thought that if Lazarus was sleeping, he was getting better. It was another example of their inability to grasp the spiritual truth. If he's sleeping, he must be improving. So let's not bother to go to Bethany. Then, so Jesus, because they didn't catch the sleeping part, right? He told them that Lazarus was dead. He did not say that he was glad his friend had died, but, the, but he, he was... He, he, he was glad that he had not been there. Now that he could reveal to his disciples his mighty power. The result would glorify God and strengthen their faith. <sighs> Think about that. Lazarus, his friend, had to die. Tough teaching, huh? Now I'm going to spend a minute or two with the sisters. Jesus was concerned not only for the faith of his own disciples, but also about the faith of Mary and Martha. Each experienced suffering and trial that ought to increase our faith. But this kind of spiritual growth is not automatic. Jesus had sent a promise to the two sisters that's recorded in John chapter 11, verse 4. Our scripture makes it clear that Mary and Martha were quite different personalities. Did I say that politely? Martha was the worker, the active one, while Mary was the contemplative one who sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to his words. Neither one was wrong, okay? Jesus did not condemn Martha's service, but he did rebuke her for being torn apart by many things. She needed to have priorities to center her activities on the things that God would approve. We would expect Martha to rush in to meet Jesus while Mary would sit in the house weeping with her friends. Now, now hear this out. Hear this out. Pay attention to this. While there may have been a tinge of disappointment in the greeting that each sister gave Jesus, and there is, there's a tinge of disappointment, there is also evidence of faith, for nobody had ever died in the presence of Jesus Christ at that point recorded in all scriptures. When you go back and read the writing, if you won't read it this week, yeah, there was, they were disappointed, but there was also evidence of faith. Martha quickly affirmed her faith in Jesus Christ, and Jesus responded to that faith by promising her that her, husband, that her brother would rise again. 
He was thinking of the immediate situation, but she had, had interpreted his words in the future resurrection of the last days. Our Lord's reply is the fifth of the I am statements of the Bible. It is important to know that Jesus did not deny what Martha had said about the future resurrection. The resurrection of the human body is a cardinal doctrine in the Orthodox Jewish faith. But in his great I am statement, in his great I am statement, our Lord completely transformed the doctrine of the resurrection and so doing so brought it in, it brought great comfort to Martha. He transformed this doctrine and he took it out of a book and he put it into a person himself. I am the resurrection and the life. That's John 11, 25. Now, why we thank God for what the Bible teaches us, and in fair, now let me give it fairness to Martha, all she had was the Old Testament. And we realize that we're saved by Jesus and not by doctrine in a book. We know him by faith. We, we don't need to fear the shadow of death. If you don't know him, you would do. When you're sick, you call a doctor. You don't get a medical book. When you're being sued, you call a lawyer, not a law book. Likewise, when you face your last enemy, death, you want a savior, a personal savior, not a doctrine written in a book. In Jesus Christ, every doctrine is made personal. You can read that for yourself in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. When you belong to him, you have all that you ever will need in life and in death and for all eternity. But, but perhaps the greatest transformation Jesus performed was to move the doctrine of the resurrection out of the future into the present. Hmm. Martha was looking to the future. Knowing that Lazarus would rise and should see him at the end. Her friends were looking at the past and saying, he could have prevented Lazarus' death. He could prevent him from dying. That's John chapter 11, verse 37. Jesus tried to center their attention on the present. Where, wherever he is, God's rec resurrection power is available now. Now that's Romans 6, 4, Galatians 2, 20, and 3, 10. Mary did not say much because she was overwhelmed with sorrow. And she began to weep. Her friends joined in and weeping. And the Jewish people are accustomed to doing that as culture for them. And they're used to loud weeping. 
I, I did a funeral when we were in Israel, and yeah, there ain't nothing quiet about it. You could hear it three blocks away. That's what they're accustomed to. Our Lord's response was to groan within and be moved to indignation. At what was he indignant about? My opinion, at the ravages of sin in the world that he had created. Death is the enemy, and Satan uses the fear of death as a terrible weapon. Now that is found in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. That, it's fearful. No wonder Jesus is indignant. The mystery of the Lord's incarnation is seen by his question in John chapter 11, 34. Jesus knew, Jesus knew that Lazarus had died, and yet he had to ask where he was buried. Our Lord never used his divine powers when normal human means would suffice as he was bound in human form. He had to ask. And then he wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, two words. It's also the deepest verse in the Bible. He was silently weeping. The Greek word you, that is used here is used nowhere else in the New Testament, only here. And it's not, it's not a loud lamentation. It's not a loud, like you think of mourners. But why did he weep at all? He knew that he was going to raise Lazarus out of the tomb in just a couple minutes. And he's weeping. Our Lord's weeping reveals the humanity of our Savior. He had entered, to, entered, to, entered into all of our experiences, and he knows how we feel. In fact, being the perfect God and the perfect man, Jesus experienced all these things in a deeper way than you and I ever will. His tears assures us of his sympathy. He is indeed a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now that is prophesied of him in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 3. It was prophesied he would be there. Today he is our merciful and faithful high priest. And we may come before the throne of God, the throne of grace, and find all the gracious help we need because he is there. We see in his tears and the, tra the tragedy of sin, but also the glory of heaven. Now, I have a personal opinion here, and I could preach two or three sermons on this. My personal opinion is that Jesus was weeping 
for Lazarus, as well as the sisters. Now, it's a personal opinion, because he knew that he was going to have to call his friend from heaven and back into this wicked world, where one day he would have to die again. Jesus had come down from heaven. He knew exactly what Lazarus was leaving behind. And trust me, I could preach you two or three sermons on that. And that's why I love this verse. The spectators saw the tears, though. And it was evidence of his love. But some of them said, if Jesus loved Lazarus so much, why didn't he just prevent his death? Perhaps they were thinking of Jesus as weeping because he's unable to do anything. His tears are of deep regret. In other words, no, nobody present really expected a miracle. If you go back and read all this chapter, nobody ex except Jesus, nobody expected a miracle. And for this, for this reason, nobody could accuse Jesus of plotting this event and be in collusion with the two sisters or friends. They all knew what had happened. Even the disciples did not believe it was going to happen, that Jesus would raise Lazarus from the dead. Now let's move to the spectators of that day. Oh, what they would see. But they did not know what was coming. The Father had told Jesus what the plan was, and Jesus obeyed the Father's will. His prayer was now for the sake of the unbelieving spectators that they might know that God had sent him. A quaint Puritan writer said that if Jesus had not named Lazarus when he had shouted, he would have emptied the entire cemetery. Yes, he would have. He, he instructed only one person to come out. I, there, ain't no, there ain't no doubt in my mind. Jesus called Lazarus and raised him from the dead. And since Lazarus was bound, he could not walk out the door of the tomb, so God's power must have carried him along. It was an unquestionable miracle. Even the most hostile spectator could not deny. The experience of Lazarus is a good illustration of what happens when a sinner puts his trust in a savior. I'm going to take you to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world, of the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgression. It is by grace you have been saved. And God has raised up the us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms with Jesus Christ, in order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of his grace and expression of his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, 
not by works, so that no man can boast. Because of the great change of Lazarus, many people desired to see him at that moment, in those days, as a living witness. And he was used by God to bring people to salvation. And that's recorded in John chapter 12, verses 9 and 11. There are no recorded words of Lazarus in the Gospels. But his daily walk was enough to convince people that Jesus was the Son of God. And because of his effective witness, Lazarus was persecuted by the religious leaders who wanted to kill him and get rid of the evidence. He and his sisters were forced to flee Israel, actually, in the long run. Church history shares that they moved to Gaul. Actually, depending on the denomination, they moved everywhere, but his grave is found in Gaul. And, and he was actually where he preached the gospel, and he, he was actually appointed the bishop by the disciples of Marcel's. Back in the year 2020, actually, the last time we were in these verses was the year 2020. And we're getting ready to experience Easter, and we're going to start walking towards Easter. I had just reading a, the book about the life and death of Lazarus, and I shared from that book the story that I used to bring that sermon to the close. And today I'm going to close you with the same story, because I've heard nothing better. The story is told that when Lazarus grew older, uh, basically about 60. His churches and himself, he was under persecution, and the Romans had arrested him and dragged him from his home and to the local governor in the province. And he stood before the governor. I'm shortening this down so you can all go out and have a joy. And, and that ruler demanded that Lazarus renounce his faith in Christ, or he would face possible death. Lazarus began to laugh. Oh, and the governor became really incensed and, and demanded that Lazarus quit laughing and take this, this seriously. And Lazarus recorded words in secular words. Don't you realize, the governor said, don't you realize I have the power to execute you? And Lazarus' laughter became louder. And finally, the governor exploded in rage and demanded to know why Lazarus laughed. Lazarus looked at the ruler and replied, I've already died once. I no longer fear death. As another way of saying it, been there, done that, I own the t-shirt. Lazarus laughed. And when foolish mortals reject the bodily resurrection of our Jesus Christ, God laughs. We are a resurrection religion. The empty tomb that we are going to experience when Easter comes tells us that we have no fear. Some of you got a few challenges. Even I got a few challenges. We all got challenges in our life. Any of you ever feel like you're losing? No, none of you are losing, right? We're graduating. Just the, we're going to go home. Some of you have been given a little extra time here to have some more time. 
doctors perform miraculous wonders on you. You're still here. Some of you, I, I was thinking I was going to do a funeral and you're not doing a funeral. You're still here. It's a wonderful thing that you're still here. But you're going to go home someday. And when you go home, you ain't going to want to leave. In my poor little mind, every time I read this story, I think of our Heavenly Father walking up and putting his hand, now this is my opinion, putting his hand on Lazarus' shoulder and say, Lazarus, I need you to go back. Jesus needs to do this. I need you to leave the, all the glories. I need you to go back and experience death once again. I need you to go back to suffering and pain and shame and troubles and tribulations. Imagine Lazarus laughing at the governor. He said, I'm going to kill you. He's like, okay, I'm going home. See, if you know God, you're going home. Everything else pales in comparison. But no doctrine will get you. It is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You can do everything that you think is right, but you don't want to hear the words, I never knew you. Jesus took it all out of the realm of doctrine and made it personal. That's the message of the tomb. Lazarus had to die again. It's recorded he died. There are no ifs, no ands, no buts. He died again. But he laughed at that. That's, now, we need to close in final song. And then there's some wonderful desserts out there. Wonderful snacks. You're all invited to join them. If you're a visitor today, you're getting a lot of meat and potato sermons. Sorry about that, but I love this story. Meat and potatoes are good. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, this world holds no fear. It is troubling and drives us crazy. Father, we, we, we know where we should be in this world. We know what the world should be doing because we, we read it in your Holy Word. Father, give us the strength to be a light to this world. That's what you've called us to do. Now bless us and guide us, because we don't fear death. Give us the strength to stand tall and true. In your son's most precious name we pray. Amen.